The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and uh, we're winding out the month of uh, April. It's Poetry Month, and we haven't really had a poetry program for you this month, but on this final day of April, we're going to take care of that. I've invited my favorite living poet into the studio, Shuli Kaywood. She returns to the program. Welcome back. I am happy to be back, and I'm happy to be in studio. It's wonderful to see you all. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's a, uh, it's a change. Uh, do you have to wear the dark sunglasses, though, Shuli? Well, you know, it's a part of my daily outfit. I thought it was kind of a poet thing. <laughs> okay. Uh, some of our listeners are not familiar with you. Um, who are you? I am a yellow springer, so I'm from here, born and raised, and I'm an author and writer. I have four books out, and I love to write, and I also teach writing. And these are... Very different books. Tell us about them. I have a, the newest one is a poetry collection that came out last year called Trouble Can Be So Beautiful at the Beginning. I have a short story collection called A Small Thing to Want. I have a memoir called The Going and Goodbye. And then I have a little sort of advice book called 52 Things I Wish I Could Have Learned When I Was 17. So you have fiction, nonfiction, poetry. Have you done any audio books yet? I have not. Okay. None. And a self-help book. I forgot the self-help book. The 52 you, Things right. I Wish I Could Have Told Myself When I Was 17. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we've had you on the show for these uh, books in the past, and we've had you on uh, for poetry in the past. And, and so we invited you back because we've had so much success with these previous recordings that we wanted to do it again. And since we are uh, celebrating poetry— I'm wondering uh, if you brought any poetry with you. I hope you brought some of your poetry and maybe some stuff that you like. Uh, What what have you got? I did. I did. Do you want me to go ahead and start with the first piece I have? If that's what you're wanting to do, sure. I love it. I love National Poetry Month, and every year uh, in April I celebrate it by um, posting people's, other people's poems on my blog to highlight works that I love. And so this is one that I posted uh, a week ago on my blog called All Your Lives, Your Sister and You Wore Long Braids by Jen Cordaro. And I'm going to read the title again because the title goes into the piece right away. It's part of the first line. So, all your lives, your sister and you wore long braids. Then your sister turns 16 and can strike the ball across the tennis court, harder than your parents could ever strike either of you. Her body rears up like a horse who knows it can leap the fence. You see it's true. You see it when her feet churn the clay surface of the court and the muscles of her thighs shake like a tremor in the earth, like a hand reaching up to stop another hand. When she cuts her braid, you see her wearing the skin of a horse beneath her clothes. She begins to appear in your dreams, summoned like an unfulfilled wish, pacing the same length of fence, showing you where the ground slopes and the one rail is just low enough. And that piece was published first in the Cider Press Review. Do you know the poet? 
I have emailed with her, mm-hmm. and I cannot wait for her first book to come out. I don't know when it's going to come out, but I have told her I will be the first buyer in line when it does. I love her work. What is it about that poem and her work that you like? I love that it tells a story. I love relationship pieces, and I love that this piece shows the relationship between the speaker in the poem and the sister and how it's showing someone how to be brave um, and how to have strength. And so I just, I love it, and I have a sister too, so I can relate to it in that way. Shuli, when you write a poem, what's the process? The process is, well, I write a poem every day. And my process for my daily writing is to just write whatever comes into my head. When I am taking a piece and um, working with it, I'll edit it to try to make the point of what I'm trying to say better in terms of line breaks, in terms of details. I'm not good at details to start with, so I always have to go back and add those things in my writing process. And then I run a prompt writing workshop every week, and I'm always taking my prompts and trying them out before I give them to my students. So my process is often working with my own prompts to get myself writing. What do you mean by details? Well, I think a lot of what makes a reader connect to a piece are the details that you put in there to bring the character or setting alive for the reader and to just connect to it. And so a lot of times my pieces are more abstract at the beginning, and so I like to have those details that give concrete imagery that may show the senses in some way, and I think that helps the reader connect to the poem of the story that I'm writing. What is a prompt writing workshop? A prompt writing workshop is uh, a workshop, at least for me, where we read a piece together that's not mine, we talk about it for a few minutes, and then I'll give them a prompt, which is a for example, if it's a, for example, Jen Cordara's piece, when we were, uh, I might have given them a prompt that said, write about a relationship that you have with someone in a time when someone helped you become braver or stronger. That might be the kind of prompt. It's a way to get someone to write. Who are we? We, you said we do this in your workshop. Who who are we? Uh, my students and I. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And And how do you Meet your students. How, how do you do this? We do this all online. Mm-hmm. We started this during the pandemic. Um, Kevin with Press 53 wanted to offer some online workshops. And so we paired up and I run the workshops. He runs the registration and I get on there and run them every Tuesday um, at noon. It's a really, really fun workshop. So you, as we're recording this, you just did one. Yes. As we're recording this, I just finished one. How did that go? It went great. I have returning um, participants, and they are wonderful writers. They always have great discussion. And so it's my one of my favorite times of the week. It's the highlight of my writing life every week. So normally you would do this in uh, your hometown of of Johnson City, Tennessee, but you came up to Yellow Springs and you did it here. And that's right. It was all just seamless, except the people in your workshop probably said, hmm, the background looks different this week. (laughs) They did, but they've seen it before because I've come up here before and run the workshop many times. Okay. What other poems have you brought along with you? This is one that we did recently in workshop called Visiting Her in Queens is More Enlightening Than a Month in a Monastery in Tibet by Michael Mark. For the fourth time, my mother asks, how many children do you have? I'm beginning to believe my answer, to mom, is wrong. Maybe the lesson is, they are not mine, not owned by me, and she is teaching me about my relationship with her. I wash my dish and hers. She washes them again. I ask why. 
She asks why I care. Before bed, she unlocks and opens the front door. While she sleeps, I close and lock it. She gets up, unlocks it. What I have, no one wants, she says. I nod. She nods. Are we agreeing? My shrunken guru says she was up all night preparing a salad for my breakfast. She serves me an onion. I want her to make French toast for me like she used to. I want to tell her about my pain, and I want her to make it go away. I want the present to be as good as the past she does not remember. I toast white bread for her, butter it, cut it in half. I eat a piece of onion. She asks why I'm crying. And that was published in The Sun magazine. I like that. Shirley Kaywood joins us. We're uh, celebrating National Poetry Month uh, on this final day of April. And... Um, just just made it under the wire. You're listening to 91.3 WYSO, connecting our community through news, music, and storytelling on the air and online. And uh, Shuli, since you brought all this poetry, I brought a few poems myself. And uh, I think that the folks at the Library of America would be very happy if I brought some attention to a book they just put out this month called The Heart of American Poetry. And it's edited by uh, Edward Hirsch. You ever heard of him? Yes. Okay. I I wasn't familiar with him, but this is a great collection. And I'm going to read a poem by Frank O'Hara, who um, died in 1966. And he wrote this about the day that Billie Holiday died. It's called The Day Lady Died. You ever heard this one? I have not. Okay. It is 1220 in New York, a Friday, three days after Bastille Day. Yes, it is 1959, and I go get a shoe shine because... I will get off the 419 in East Hampton at 7.15 and then go straight to dinner, and I don't know the people who will feed me. I walk up the muggy street beginning to sun and have a hamburger and a malted and buy an ugly New World riding to see what the poets in Ghana are doing these days. I go on to the bank and Miss Stillwagon, first name Linda, I once heard, doesn't even look up my balance for once in her life. And in the Golden Griffin, I get a little Verlaine for Patsy with drawings by Bernard, although I do think of Hesiod, translated by Richmond Lattimore, or Brendan Behan's new play, or Le Bacon, or Les Negres of Genet, but I don't. I stick with Verlaine after practically going to sleep with quandriness. And for Mike, I just stroll into the Park Lane liquor store and ask for a bottle of Strega, and then I go back where I came from to 6th Avenue and the tobacconist in the Ziegfeld Theater, and casually asked for a carton of Galois and a carton of Picayunes and a New York Post with her face on it. And I am sweating a lot by now and thinking of leaning on the John door in the five spot while she whispered a song along the keyboard to Mal Waldron and everyone and I stopped breathing. That is beautiful. And I love the details in that piece that make me be able to see the setting of this speaker. And I love how he uses the mugginess of the day and that kind of brings out that sensory part. And then he's beginning to sweat by the end. I mean, that's beautiful. You're a good listener. I try to be. <laughs> <laughs> My guest is Shuli Kaywood. You're listening to the Book Nook. We're celebrating this final day of National Poetry Month with some poems, and uh, we'll bring you more 
with Shuli right after this. The book now continues on WYSO. I'm Vic McEwnis, and today we're celebrating the final day of National Poetry Month with my guest, Shuli Kaywood, who joins us right here in the studio. And Shuli's brought along some poetry that she enjoys by other poets, and she's brought along some of her own. And I'm sure a lot of listeners out there are clamoring right now saying, Shuli, read one of yours. I'm sure they are. <laughs> I'd be happy to read one of mine. I write a lot of um, relationship poems, relationship pieces in general, and I like to write about two people, uh, whether it's romantic or whether it's a mother-daughter, you know, friend poem. And so this one I wrote, it is called Fast Love, and it's from my uh, poetry collection, Trouble Can Be So Beautiful at the Beginning. And when I wanted to write this piece, I wanted to write about it um, looking at a relationship through its stages. So... The first part of the poem is the beginning of the relationship, and then it goes to the end and it goes backwards, if that makes sense, all the way back to the beginning. This is called Fast Love. In your damp basement apartment, in your living room with one chair, years before the divorce, long before we met up outside a bookstore to exchange flickering lamps and a nicked table and one deed, way before we slept on the east coast and west coast of our bed, before we spent a week apart and did not phone, before you went out with the boys and I caught the late bus after work, before we ate falafel sandwiches on Paris streets and let the sun tell us how long the days would last, before we sanded the oak table we bought with what little money we had, before we moved to a state where neither of our families lived to remind us we were loved, before we held hands under the maple and I wore white and you black and leaves clung to summer, before we ambled the cobbled paths of Tosco and slept against each other on a bus to Oaxaca, before you stirred my tea in your cup in your damp basement apartment, before we really knew each other. Did we ever really know each other? In your living room with one chair, we flicked on your stereo and George Michael sang while we danced, and the room did not seem damp or small or underground. We had wings then, didn't we? We had sky. Julie Kaywood, reading from her poetry collection. And it sounded like you were reading from your autobiography in that one. That was a true poem. Not all mm -hmm. poems are true, mm -hmm. but that one is true. Okay. That was the first husband? That was the first husband. Uh -huh. Poor guy. <laughs> He's had to be written about a lot, but well, that's okay. Material's material. Write what you know. That's right. Mm -hmm. I think it's a beautiful poem. Thank you. There's a lot of emotion in the poem. Yeah, I hope so. And Thank Im you. imagery. Yes, all those details, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. So we've got uh, more poems in the stack there. Um, any other favorites that you brought along? Yes. So Jeffrey Davis wrote this piece called King County Metro, and I have discovered Jeffrey Davis. Uh, this comes from his collection, Revising the Storm. He has more than one collection out, and I love his pieces. Um, he just has a lot of depth to his poetry. This is called King County Metro, and one of the things I really love about this piece is that it goes into the future. So it's talking about this moment that happens, and then uh, in the relationship, it goes into the future to see what will happen and then goes back to that original moment. King County Metro by Jeffrey Davis. In Seattle in 1982, my mother beholds this man boarding the bus, the one she's already turning into my father. His style, 
if you can call it that, disarming disregard, a loud Hawaiian print shirt and knee-high tube socks that reach up the deep tone of his legs toward the dizzying orange of running shorts. Outside, the gray city blocks lurch past wet windows as he starts his shy sway down the aisle. Months will pass before he shatters his ankle during a Navy drill, the service discharging him back into the everyday teeth of the world. Two of four kids will arrive before he meets the friend who teaches him the art of roofing and, soon after, the crack pipe, the attention it takes to manage either without destroying the hands. The air breaks gasp as he approaches my mother's row, each failed rehab and jail sentence still decades off in the distance. So much waits in the fabulous folds of tomorrow. And my mother, who will take 20 years to burn out her love for him, hesitates a moment before making room beside her, the striking brown face poised above her head, smiling. My mother will blame all that happens, both good and bad, on this smile, which glows now, ready to consume half of everything it gives. Mm, the crack pipe, that also sounds like autobiography. What do you know about this poet? I don't know if this is true or not. He's written a lot of poems about a father, but I never presume to know whether it's true or not. Um, my guess is that part of it's true just based on all the poetry he's written about a father figure, but again... I, I never presume that, so I don't know. But I have written him an email and said, I love your poetry, because I do. It's just beautiful and deep and moving. I mean, he has incredible poetry. Mm. Julie K. Wood joins us. Her website is juliekwood.com. How do poets make a living, if that's possible? How do they get published? Um, are there more than three or four poets that actually can make a living? I mean, tell us about it. I think there are poets who can make a living. They're the bigger name poets. I'm probably more familiar with people who are not necessarily making a living on it, but I think a lot of them do teach. So when I look up poets' biographies, a lot of them are at universities and teaching. And so I think that's how a lot of poets make their livings or running their own workshops. So I think that's primarily um, the way people do it. If there are poets like Mary Oliver who can just, who's dead now, but I think she was probably bringing in enough money with just yeah. writing poetry. There are a few of those. Sure. Billy Collins. There, sure. There's half a dozen that I can think of that sure. probably do okay. But right. it's got to be a pretty tough thing to, to – like you say, that these people have other jobs. Right. I can't imagine a lot of poets saying, oh, gosh, I – Hope someone buys my next book because uh, I've right. got to pay the rent. Right, right. And and most poets are publishing in smaller houses. And you do have like the Simon and Schuster poetry books of the world, but most poets, at least in the U.S., are publishing in small presses or just in literary magazines. And you know they may get paid forty, fifty dollars for a poem if we're lucky, but mm. it's just you know you usually have to make a living another way. We've had uh, Herbert Woodward Martin on the show mm -hmm. a number of times. So our uh, wonderful poet from Dayton, who is such an authority on the work of Paul Lawrence Dunbar and, and a wonderful poet in his own. You know, his stuff is great, too. And, and uh, he is is a submission machine, or at least he used mm -hmm. to be. He's constantly sending stuff out, He's constantly sending things to literary reviews and poetry magazines and blah, blah, blah. Is that what you do? I do. I do in phases. So I have a second poetry collection ready to go. It's not published. It hasn't found a publisher yet. 
But when I was leading up to sending it out as a manuscript, I would send out, I, I wanted to publish a third to half the poems individually in literary magazines. So when I was going through that process, I was sending out poems, you know, at least every week, if not every other day, trying to get a third to half of them published in the best magazines I could get into, um, get them into. And so, yeah, it's it's a work. It's it's part of the job of poetry. I actually really like researching literary magazines and submitting, but a lot of writers don't like that part. I think it's fun. So you have a second poetry collection? I don't remember reading it, Julie. Well, it's waiting in your mailbox. It is? I just checked my mailbox. <laughs> It'll be there tomorrow. Did you bring any of those poems from that collection with you? That brought, You said they've been published in other things, some of them. So I did. I brought two from that collection. Oh, great. Okay. So, hint... Hint. Well, I'm, I'll read one of them. This poem, called Soft Boiled Eggs on Any Morning, is recently published in a place called Appalachian Places, which is a relatively new online literary magazine associated with East Tennessee State University, which is my local to Johnson City, Tennessee University. Soft, boil, soft Boiled Eggs on Any Morning. They say a watched pot never boils, but I've stood over plenty, and they always do if I wait long enough, which I was raised to do. To get an egg to turn soft-boiled as opposed to hard, so the yolk can still leak out, not having toughened yet, you must start with eggs in cold water and heat them over flame in a pot, gifted to you by the aunt who never liked you, maybe even never loved you. Yet she gave you this pot which has endured your bad marriage, your bout with cancer, the death of your friend who took your hands in hers and said, it's time to dye your hair. <laughs> because she promised to tell you when the strands were too peppered, and though you no longer dye anything now that she is dead, you ache for her hands and for the smooth and scarless skin on your chest and for the way you once believed love was enough. Now you stand beside the stove and watch the water boil. It always does. It always will. And once this bath splashes against the sides of this silver sturdy pot, you set the timer two and a half minutes long and wait for it to be over. Anyone can wait those minutes. The eggs clink against each other. Steam rises toward your face and finds it. Sorry, I laughed. No, I love it. That's That was supposed to be a funny moment in the poem. It was perfect. Yeah, I hear a lot about that, about the whole hair dye thing. We talked about that on a previous show with a guest from Waynesville. <laughs> that the whole, I need to, to look young, that whole thing. My guest is Shuli Kaywood. That's a, a beautiful poem, Shuli. And, you. and uh, you're pitching that right now. What's the process? Are, are you going to maybe get it published by someone you've published with before? The last collection was published a, as part of a, an award, wasn't it? It was. It was the Adrian Bond Award for Poetry uh, put out with Mercer University Press. They run the contest. I won, which was wonderful. And then they published the book, and that came out last year. Okay. So how do you get the second collection published? What's the process for that? For me, I want to start out with submitting the manuscript to contests, which is always a long shot. You know, one person wins out of, who knows, 300, 500,000 other manuscripts. So when I'm looking at contests, I always look at the judge to see if, you know, is my poetry even in line with their poetry or is what they're interested in totally outside of what mm. I write? 
Um, and so I have a certain budget for contests, and so I'm going within that budget. And once I, because it always costs to enter these contests, almost always costs to enter these contests. And so I have a budget, and once I submit to contests, if I don't win one of those contests, which is, again, the likely thing, then I will submit it just straight to a small press or a university publisher. Okay. I'm Vic McCunis. It's the Book Nook. I've been joined in the studio by Shuley K. Wood and... Uh, I have another poem I picked out of this collection uh, just out on the Library of America called The Heart of American Poetry. Edward, Edward Hirsch uh, edited this. Is that cool? Can I, can I, I can love I it. Re- read this poem? Okay. And I bet you've heard of this poet because I've actually heard of him. John Ashbery. Of course. All right. It's called Soonest Mended. Barely tolerated, living on the margin in our technological society. We were always having to be rescued on the brink of destruction like heroines in Orlando Furioso before it was time to start all over again. There would be thunder in the bushes, a rustling of coils, and Angelica in the Ingress painting was considering the colorful but small monster near her toe as though wondering whether forgetting the whole thing might not in the end be the only solution. And then there always came a time when Happy Hooligan in his rusted green automobile came plowing down the course just to make sure everything was okay. Only by that time, we were in another chapter and confused about how to receive this latest piece of information. Was it information? Weren't we rather acting this out for someone else's benefit, thoughts in a mind with room enough and to spare for our little problems? So they began to seem. Our daily quandary about food and the rent and the bills to be paid to reduce all this to a small variant, to step free at last, minuscule on the gigantic plateau. This was our ambition, to be small and clear and free. Alas, the summer's energy wanes quickly. A moment, and it is gone. And no longer may we make the necessary arrangements, simple as they are. Our star was brighter, perhaps, when it had water in it. Now there is no question even of that, but only of holding on to the hard earth so as not to get thrown off. With an occasional dream of vision, a robin flies across the upper corner of the window. You brush your hair away, and I cannot quite see, or a wound will flash against the sweet faces of the others. Something like, this is what you wanted to hear. So why did you think of listening to something else? We are all talkers, it is true. But underneath the talk lies the moving and not wanting to be moved. The loose meaning, untidy and simple, like a threshing floor. These then were some hazards of the course. Yet though we knew the course was hazards and nothing else, it was still a shock when almost a quarter of a century later, The clarity of the rules dawned on you for the first time. They were the players, and we who had struggled at the game were merely spectators, though subject to its vicissitudes, and moving with it out of the tearful stadium, borne on shoulders at last. Night after night this message returns, repeated in the flickering bulbs of the sky, raised past us, taken away from us, yet ours, over and over until the end that is past truth, the being of our sentences in the climate that fostered them. 
not ours to own, like a book, but to be with, and sometimes to be without, alone and desperate. But the fantasy makes it ours, a kind of fence-setting, raised to the level of an aesthetic ideal. These were moments, years, solid with reality, faces, nameable events, kisses, heroic acts, but like the friendly beginning of a geometrical progression, not too reassuring, as though meaning could be cast aside someday when it had been outgrown. Better, you said, to stay cowering like this in the early lessons, since the promise of learning is a delusion. And I agreed, adding that tomorrow would alter the sense of what had already been learned, that the learning process is extended in this way, so that from this standpoint, none of us ever graduates from college. For time is an emulsion, and probably thinking not to grow up is the brightest kind of maturity for us, right now, at any rate. And you see, both of us were right, though nothing has somehow come to nothing. The avatars of our conforming to the rules and living around the home have made, well, in a sense, good citizens of us, brushing the teeth and all that, and learning to accept the charity of the hard moments as they are doled out. For this is action, this not being sure, this careless preparing, sowing the seeds crooked in the furrow, making ready to forget, and always coming back to the mooring of starting out that day so long ago. 1969. Mm, thank you for that. Yeah. What makes you gravitate towards certain poems? What do you look for when you're looking for a poem you like? I just like language. Mm, yeah. I like story. Yeah, I like I like story too. Yeah, I just I I always think it's interesting what propels someone to pick out different poems. You know, like you see an editor and you see what they're publishing in magazines and you think, what are they looking for? You know, why why do people like certain poems? And I, I love that poem for its philosophy. It really dives deep in and it has these details, like the brushing of the teeth. Mm. Um, just, I love that mix of it in that poem. I've been joined in studio by Shuli Kaywood, and we're celebrating the final day of National Poetry Month, and we'll bring you one more segment and hopefully some more poetry from Shuli right after this. You're listening to The Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and we're marking our final day of the month of April, National Poetry Month, this Saturday morning with Shuli Kaywood, my favorite living poet. And she has come in all the way from her home in Johnson City, Tennessee, to read poetry for you out there in the Miami Valley. Some of her own poetry and some poetry that she's admired by other poets. And, and uh, I'm hoping that you'll read something from your recent collection, which was out last year. Yeah, I would love to. Thank you. This poem is called Beginners. In the back of the refrigerator, this jar of seeds from so many summers ago, our first, second, when we bought pine planks that became walls of raised bed, we hauled in a truckload of sand so heavy when wet it could bury any good idea. 
We tugged out a clean tarp, then mixed compost, manure, mushrooms, with soil dark enough to obscure doubt and disappointment, things that we would swat at later that season that would chew on everything we grew. All those harlequin bugs with their spots and persistence. They hid below kale riddled with holes. The bugs swelled and survived, and the plants yellowed yet lived on. The sun-sugar tomatoes broke open their orange bellies, still sweet despite brown stems and speckled leaves. What was there to do but start over the next year and the next and wait for pests and root rot and blight? We twined tomatoes with copper. We sunk marigolds into soil. We caught harlequin bugs by the handful, knowing that already they'd already laid their eggs. How sure we were we'd know better what to do through too hot or rainy seasons, water less or water more. How sure standing at the counter every spring that we had chosen better seeds. How sure of our good fortune that we had what we would need. Julie K. Wood, reading from her poetry collection that came out last year, and it's got a great title. What's the title again? Trouble Can Be So Beautiful at the Beginning. There's a title poem that starts the book that Mm -hmm. has the same title. And do you have a title for what you hope will be your second published collection, or or are you going to leave that up to the publisher? I'll probably leave it up to the publisher because I have a revolving door of titles, and so I've used different ones for different contests, not really knowing, not really being sure what the right title is. Are they all poem titles? No, they're not. Uh-huh. Uh, some of them aren't, and then some of them might be a f- uh, like a few words from a poem, but none of them are the titles of a poem this time. Uh-huh. You are doing all this teaching online. Mm. Is any of it about poetry? Well, I am going to be offering soon a workshop for people who've never written a poem and who want to try their hand at it, who Mm -hmm. think they can't write a poem or just are intimidated by it, but I haven't developed that workshop yet. And then the workshop, the prompt writing workshop I have every Tuesday is one that we do read and discuss a poem, but they're like these. I hope that they're accessible. So a lot of people in in that group don't write poetry, but the prompt is always related to the poem. So we talk about poems, but we're not talking about, you know, using literary terms for poetry necessarily. It should be a poem that's accessible to everybody who comes. Are you in any kind of a writer's group? I am. I go to an online uh, workshop called Community Building Artworks, their Friday noon group, and I do that workshop almost every Friday with them. And is that one where you've got a screen full of everybody's faces? and True, yes. Uh-huh, you're all talking to each other? Well, we're not talking to each other. We're writing, but we can see each other, and we're you're, all happy to see each other. You're writing during the workshop? yes. Yeah. So so you can see people sitting there with their typewriters? If, if, with their – usually they have writing pads, but if they have typewriters, then yes, we really? can see the typewriters. <laughs> so none of you are speaking? You're all – do you occasionally hear an exasperated sigh or, or, or curse words? Or? Nope. No? Everybody's muted. Everybody's quiet, huh? Yeah. There is something – there is some energy to – even online, it's strange. There is an energy to coming together and writing even if you're in different places. I can't explain it, but there is something that makes me write better in a group. Really? Mm-hmm. Even yeah. though the group is online? You know, you wouldn't think that, but it actually works really well. That I is... don't know what it is. There is some magic in coming together and all being focused on writing. It it's helps. so bizarre. Yeah. What yeah. kind of people are in this group with you? People from all over, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, just a bunch of writers who are willing to be open and creative and 
Right. Yeah. Huh. Well, I've never heard of something like that. Of course, I'm a person who I see someone in the coffee shop writing, and I just go, how can they possibly focus? And you love writing in coffee I shops. I love, and I got to write this morning at the Emporium at my favorite table in Yellow Springs. I'm just so excited. Well, I was just leaving to meet with you today. I was leaving the Emporium. And I saw a writer who I've had on this show who writes really great fantasy, a guy named Christopher Buhlman. And he got out of his vehicle and he went inside and he came back out again. He says, darn, he says, I was too late. All the tables are full. And he writes in there. Wow. And he, he wrote a lot of this most recent novel in the Emporium. Mm. I've written a lot of my books in the Emporium. I, I hear from a lot of people who do that, but I couldn't focus. I couldn't concentrate. I would be distracted by that annoying customer talking too loudly over on the other side or, or I love it. The music or something would distract me. Well, there are a lot of writers like you, so you're not alone. Do you listen to music at all when I, you're writing? I don't. No. No, no. It it is quiet in my house when I write, other mm-hmm. than my dog barking. So your dog helps? <laughs> she tries. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Well, her name is Kibby, by the way. She's lovely. How's Kibby? She's great. Is she? What kind of dog is she again? She's an Italian water dog. And what is that? It. She looks like a poodle. She looks like a labradoodle. And she likes to swim. She loves to swim. Mm-hmm. Can't get enough. Kibby. Well, I see uh, we're we're burning up the clock here. Can you read another poem? Have Have you read all the ones that you brought in that you got permission to read? Because we don't want to waste any of these permissions. We don't, and I have. Three more. Oh, no. We better hurry. Okay. (laughs) What to Look for in a Horse by Brett Elizabeth Jenkins, and this was published in The Sun magazine. Get a horse with a little sass, one who will try to buck you if she knows you've been drinking too much. Get a horse with a pretty mane. They say looks aren't everything, but they're wrong. Get a horse who will tell it to you straight, who will look you square in the eye and say, girl, what the f*** were you thinking last night? Who was that guy? Your horse must be willing to trample anyone who was mean to you in your childhood. It is not important whether or not your horse can sing or if she has a felony record. In fact, a record in certain cases could be helpful. Her flanks should feel smooth against your ankles. Her legs should be fast, faster than all your sadness. She should always be ready to run. Shirley Kaywood, reading from uh, Poem by Who again? Brett Elizabeth Jenkins, What to Look for in a Horse. Sorry I exclaimed in the middle of that poem. I just It was so good. I just I couldn't help myself. All right, so, so uh, we've got two more. What else have you got? Small Kindnesses by Danusha Lamaris. I've been thinking about the way when you walk down a crowded aisle, people pull in their legs to let you by, or how strangers still say, bless you, when someone sneezes, a leftover from the bubonic plague. Don't die, we are saying. And sometimes when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you pick them up. Mostly, we don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it, to smile at them and for them to smile back, for the waitress to call us honey when she sets down the bowl of clam chowder, and for the driver in the red pickup truck to let us pass. We have so little of each other now, so far from tribe and fire. Only these brief moments of exchange. What if they are the true dwelling of the holy, these fleeting temples we make together when we say, here, have my seat. Go ahead, you first. I like your hat. I like your poem. And this was published in her book, Bonfire Opera. I like that one. Mm -hmm. I like all the stuff you brought in. Thank you. 
So we have just one more we need to burn up before uh, the permissions expire. All right. This is called Our Father by Jill McDonough. A year or two mornings before school, our father came into our rooms with pliers. My sisters and I crammed into Jordache casings, Gloria Vanderbilt's. We jump into jeans, tug them up our ashy thighs, abrade young skin with denim seams. Taut, denimed butts on polyester holly-hoppy bedspreads until they were painted on, until our arms ached, our fingers hurt, until we were panting, exhausted, our smooth foreheads beaded with sweat. Near tears, as usual, calling for help. After the first time when he laughed but then couldn't grip the brass zipper, so ha-ha, Dad, the joke's on you, he kept pliers handy, grabbed the pool tab, tugged it up the teeth so we could button our own damn pants. What we think we want, what we know. What do we know when we ask for what we think we want? We pray for ridiculous things, we humans, and so often are indulged. And that was published first in Poem a Day on July 20th, 2018, by the Academy of American Poets. What a fun poem. What do you know about that poet? I know very little about Jill McDonough, but I love that poem. How did you find it? I am always scouring the internet for poems, and I came across it years ago. It's been a favorite of mine for a while. And you actually asked her if you could read it on this program. I did. And she responded. She responded and said, sure, exclamation point. Mm Mm-hmm. Because when you do that, you're helping the poet, right? I I hope so. I would love for someone to read my poem. (laughs) Well, do you still have one from your unreleased collection that that you haven't read? Sure. Can you read that one? Sure. This is Just to kind of build up the, the suspense. The suspense. This is called The Road of Love. There is a woman on the side of the road, her car's one good tire embedded with a nail deflating this rubber of lies. She's traveled for miles on roads her parents showed her by cornfields, all stalks in straight rows, through flat lands where she could spot any town's church, its steeple puncturing unknown horizon. And there was always somewhere in the distance a red barn with a narrow door where she supposed a farmer would emerge, someone who knew the land and its expectations, someone who could recite the weather's recipes, who could sing the hymn of seeds and sowing and reaping. But now she understands that no one emerges from the red barn who knows a damn thing, and out the wider barn door bolt hungry goats and crying sheep and chickens pecking ground for answers, and wild dogs and feral cats who never stop scratching, and there she is, that one wild horse, mane loose because truth is this gallop where no one needs a car made by man and misunderstanding. Tell me why we ever made rules about whom to love. Tell the woman the now flat tire was never the good one. It was always the others, the ones that the ones no one expected to carry anything far, the ones who were rolling forward all along. Oh, I like that one. Thank you. Of course, any poem with chickens and feral cats. <laughs> I mean, you got me. That's that. right. <laughs> How long ago did you write that? Maybe a year and a half ago. Yeah. Well, I love that. Thank you. My guest is Shuli Kaywood. We've been talking about poetry for National Poetry Month. And I've also read a couple of poems that are included in this new collection put out by the Library of America, edited by Edward Hirsch. It's called The Heart of American Poetry. And he'll have a poem, and then he'll give us a lot of information about the poet and and some analysis of the poetry. And I've got a real short one now because we're running out of time. But this is written by James Wright, who, according to Edward Hirsch, was a homegrown, handmade, self-invented American poet and intellectual. He grew up during the Great Depression in Martins Ferry, Ohio, a 
a small blighted industrial town on the Ohio River across from Wheeling, West Virginia, where both of his parents, who had dropped out of school, worked hard physical jobs for their entire lives. His father, Dudley Wright, was employed as a die cutter at Hazel Atlas Glass for 50 years. His mother, Jessie Wright, worked the giant ironing presses or mangles at the White Swan Laundry. The blue-collar town attracted waves of immigrants from different European countries, and he grew up with a sympathy for an ethnically disparate, perennially held down working class. And this poem is called Autumn Begins in Martin's Ferry, Ohio. In the Shreve High School Stadium, I think of Pollocks nursing long beers in Tiltonsville, and gray faces of Negroes in the blast furnace at Benwood, and the ruptured night watchman of wheeling steel, dreaming of heroes. All the proud fathers are ashamed to go home. Their women cluck like starved pullets, dying for love. Therefore, their sons grow suicidally beautiful at the beginning of October and gallop terribly against each other's bodies. It was written in 1963. Of course, he's talking about football. Wow. In that uh, last line. I've, I've read that poem before. It must be one of his more famous ones. I think I read it in college. It's mm. so familiar. Well, I read it for you right here on the book nook. And my guest has been Shirley Kaywood. And, and we've really had a fun time having you in the studio. And it's so nice of you to come by. Well, I love talking poetry anytime you want. It's, it's a joy. And are you still working on a novel? Never was working. You were on a never novel. working on a novel. Didn't you say you're working on a novel? No, before? I I wrote one and shelved it. It's in my computer in the back, you know, back room of the computer. <laughs> well, maybe that maybe that's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> Did you tell me about that a while ago? Or yeah, it's terrible. Is it? Oh yeah. What's it about? Oh, it's a relationship. Childhood sweethearts come back together. It's it's not good. What a shock. <laughs> Are, that there, I have not experienced. It's a lost cause? I think it might be a lost cause. Uh-huh. So, How long ago did you write it? Uh, maybe five years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think you mentioned this before. I'm sure I did, and I'm sure I so, told you it was awful. <laughs> I think it's before you gave up hope, though. I think that, that I think I did have some hope back then, but yeah, I, think, I haven't pulled it out. Okay. So we're not going to get a, a Shirley Kaywood novel? I don't know. I it You never know, Vic. You have that great collection of short stories which I'd like to mention as, as the, the clock expires. Uh, tell us about your short story collection. It's a short story collection, again, about relationships, uh, love relationships, not necessarily romantic love, although there is some romantic love in there. There's family relationships. And um, it's about who people choose to keep in their life and who they choose to let go. I, I think of it as stories that revolve around that theme. It's called A Small Thing to Want, out by Press 53. And it's a great book, by the way. And I don't want to give short shrift to the 52 things. So we need to talk about the 52 things. What what is that book about? That book is advice that I wish I could have given myself when I was 17. Things I didn't know that I, I wish I'd known. I don't know that I would have paid attention when I was 17, but I look back and I think, I wish I'd known all these things. So it's 52 things. There's one on each page really tiny. It's not poems. It's not memoir, but just 52 things I wish I could have known when I was 17. Wish I could have told myself back then when I was 17. Isn't hindsight a wonderful thing? 
when you look back at your life and you think about all the decisions you made and the choices you made and, and the things that happened to you in your life based upon what you chose to do at that moment. And, and in hindsight, you just say, oh, darn, I wished I'd, I wished I'd done that or I wished I'd not done that. Or That's so true. But if I hadn't made all those mistakes, what writing material would I have? So, you know, mm-hmm. they make it makes great writing material. Okay. Well, we're uh, getting ready to sign off here. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts or words of wisdom to share with our listeners here in Southwest Ohio? I would just encourage everybody, especially in April, to read a poem. There are accessible poems out there. Some people get intimidated by poetry and think all of it is not accessible. And there is some odd poetry, just like there's odd everything. But there are a lot of poems that are accessible. And so I would encourage everyone to read a poem this month. Well, considering tomorrow is May 1st, I'd say just read a poem. That sounds great. You know, not just in April. Even though we, we got in here at the tail end of April for our National Poetry Month Book Nook program, and it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, Shuley. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Book Nook on WYSO, and uh, Shuley has given you the names of all her stuff, all her books, and uh, I'll give you the name once more of this collection I've been reading from, just published by the Library of America. It's called The Heart of American Poetry, edited by Edward Hirsch. And for the book nook, I'm Vic McCunis. <laughs>